Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And welcome to this edition of the Net Positive Podcast. This edition is with Dennis Hayes, the coordinator of the first Earth Day in 1970 and the founder of the Earth Day Network. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. Is anybody out there? Hey. Or indeed. Hey, Ted, how are you? Whoa, we did it. We did it. Nice to see you. And you. We're, we're dialed in technically here, huh? Uh, we're, we're just like teenagers. <laughs> Dennis, I am so honored to have you on the show. You inspire me. You've inspired many of us. Uh, not too many can claim to have forged a movement, uh, maybe the largest secular observance in the world. Uh, you've, mo you've mobilized, you and obviously the network that you galvanized have mobilized hundreds of millions of people. Uh, I, uh, that, that is just profound. So I, I thank you for that. Because you, I think, you brought a whole environmental movement together. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ted. That, that's a, a wild, gross overstatement, but I, I'll take the compliment and, and move on. Let's let's go all the way back in your life um, to your youth. I was a little conf confused. I, I believe you were born in Wisconsin, but then moved to Washington shortly thereafter. Is that right? Oh, close. Uh, I was born in Wisconsin, moved to Canada. Uh, at the age of three, and then moved to the state of Washington, a little paper mill community at the age of six. Gotcha. And, that, and your dad worked at the, the paper mill, is that right? And yeah, my dad was in that generation that, um, you know, he, there wasn't a lot of room around the edges financially. So when his dad died, and he was 12, he had to drop out of school and become the quote unquote man of the family. Got a job in a paper mill, um, and as a kid in a tough business, he, he got to be very tough, and he spent the rest of his life in the paper business. He, yeah. When he retired, he was running the number 10 paper machine at the Camus Crown Zellerbeck Mill, doing red wrap and frozen foods. <laughs> no kidding. And then did you have siblings? Were, was there a big family, or what was it? No, it's just my, my mother... Uh, had a son before she was married to my father with a previous husband and my father had a daughter with a previous wife so I've got a, a half brother and a half sister they're both deceased yeah and you were the and little they are so much older than I am I mean I at the age of 16 I think it was the third time I'd seen my sister in my life we were not very close yeah yeah I was effectively an only child except wasn't and then what was your thing as a kid? Were you, were you into sports like me or what was your, what, what, what were you into? Uh, a bunch of things. Um, partly because um, in Canada, we were an incredibly small little village there starting up a small mill that had been uh, used as a prisoner of war camp during the second world war. And my dad was part of the effort to bring it back to life. Um, 
So there was really nothing to do there. So they enrolled me in school. So I was in the first grade at the age of three. <laughs> and that, that really messed me up athletically by the time I got to be in the fourth grade. I, I, you know, I just couldn't compete at all. So I stayed back for a year and got a little bit more. It wasn't until the seventh grade probably that I was really able to hold myself athletically. And, and I was doing much more uh, traditional schoolwork and an enormous amount of reading. And once I got old enough, an enormous amount of exploring the Columbia River Gorge and Gifford Pinchot National Forest, and the great outdoors. Yeah, and then I read that you went backpacking in different parts of the world. And uh, I love backpacking to this day. And where, what were some of the best trips that you took? Well, it was one big trip uh, for the around the world thing. I, I, I took off at the age of 19 and spent the next three years in a sense, you know, what in the 1960s we used to call a vision quest. I was, I was trying to find, I, I suppose I was trying to think of some reason not to commit suicide. Uh, the, the whole world seemed to be meaningless and wildly outside my control. You know, I, I, I turned around for, for three years uh, carrying a copy of Catch-22. Whenever I seemed to be finding something that was solid, Joseph Heller would bring me back. No, it's not. Um, but I, oh, I, I, I went across the Soviet Union on the Trans-Siberian Railway, which was not much being done back in those days from... Uh, uh, Vladivostok all the way to, uh, to Moscow, went down through Eastern Europe, down the west coast of Africa, spent a fair amount of time in Namibia and South Africa, uh, then came up the east coast, I hitchhiked throughout the Middle East, places where I would be shot on sight today, uh, but in those days it was entirely doable, and down through Southwest Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, with certain trepidations, the war was going on in Vietnam and war-like things were happening in Cambodia and Laos. And then uh, I, I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in Japan where I ran the athletic program for a club that catered to the foreign business and diplomatic community. And yeah. that's really how I paid for it. I mean, there, there were parts that I said I hitchhiked. Well, if you're going down the west coast of Africa, there's a pretty big stretch where there's not much in the way of roads. I had the ability when I came into impassable territories or big chunks of water like the Mediterranean, uh, part of my job in Tokyo gave me the equivalent of a round trip airfare to the United States. So I just had those airfare dollar equivalents that I could cash in whenever I needed to hop over something. And, and those years gave you uh, obviously a very big global picture. Um, were, you, were you, did you figure it out after that? Was that when you decided to come back and go to college or what? Well, I, I, this was after my sophomore year in college and, um, and, and the first two years had done exactly what they're supposed to do. They completely shredded everything that I thought that I knew about my country and about my religion and about everything. Uh, but in the first two years, I didn't build it back up. I was left on my own to do that. Um, there was uh, an epiphany of sorts that I had that was the looking back on it, the whole reason for the trip. There's no particular reason why it should have happened right when it did, but it, uh, I had, I'd been at um, a place called Itasha Pan in what was then Southwest Africa, it's now Namibia, a, a huge seasonal watering hole where 
literally everything comes at night and gathers together and um, predators and prey are sort of next to one another lapping up the water it's like an intermission in the game of life <laughs> they all lap water and then go back and kill one another off-site and it was just this incredible profusion of biodiversity and I, I began thinking then much more in biological terms about everything where I'd been thinking mostly in economic and political terms before that a couple of days later, I find myself down on the coast in a little town called Luteritz, named after the explorer who claimed Southwest Africa for Germany. And uh, this, this is a long and involved story, but uh, to, to cut to maybe the essence of it, um, it was the place where the Germans did a trial run on concentration camps using Africans. And I had been completely unaware of that till I got there, but uh, the, the local tribes uh, were caused to build a, a railroad across the Namib Desert, and then hauled out to this place, which is now called Shark Island uh, at night. And um, they were underfed, they were malnourished, they were confined and uh, died at fairly great rates. And uh, they took the dead bodies, put them at the low tide level, and when the high tide came in, the island got its name Shark Island. That was how they fed them. And there was something about the juxtaposition of those two things, I think. In any case, I, as I was leaving the coast and had crossed the Namib, I looked back and, and for some reason, something came into my mind that, that <laughs> determined the course of my life. I had taken a National Science Foundation course when I was in high school uh, on ecology. Uh, Never heard of ecology till they invited me to this course, but it was a chance to get out of town and see more of the world, so I did it. And we um, came out of it with a fairly basic understanding of the principles of ecology. In my search for meaning and some organizing principle, and I, I found that what I found in Algiers was not the revolutionary man that Franz Fanon had promised. And what I saw in Russia and Eastern Europe wasn't a Marxist paradise. And, and, and India certainly was not uh, a model of alternative uh, development. I was trying to think of something that made sense and what somehow got into my mind, then there was no vocabulary for it, but it's what we would now call, uh, urban ecology, industrial ecology, human ecology, but the not so profound observations that humans are animals and that everything on the planet is bound by these principles of ecology. We'd managed to escape some of them for a while because for the rest of nature, energy is really expensive and everything drives you to efficiency, whereas we'd gotten these cheap, relatively plentiful fossil energy reserves. But ask myself, what? What would happen if we tried to pattern human society upon ecological principles? And it seemed to me that it wouldn't solve all of our problems, but it would solve a bunch of problems and decided that that was what I wanted to focus at least the next several years and perhaps my life on. Right. So I, I left a confused 19 year old and came back with a sort of sense of mission. Good job. Yeah. Well, well done. Well done. And, and I guess at that time was, was that maybe that was a little after the Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's book? But there was a the, the smog was getting to be acute uh, in many cities around the world, and waters were polluted. And then we had the Santa Barbara oil spill. So it was at, it sounds like your epiphany and all these uh, 
really stark events were uh, all coming together at the same time. Yeah, uh, Rachel Carson issued Silent Spring maybe the year before I took off. And then when I got back, uh, we had the Santa Barbara oil spill my senior year in college, Northern California, um, Stanford. And yeah, uh, we had the thermal inversions turning the air of Los Angeles and Gary and Chicago and Pittsburgh all into things that were the equivalent of smoking a couple packs of cigarettes a day and, and literally no controls at all on water pollution that was being poured into rivers and streams. It, it, it was something where by any reasonable index of the quality of life, uh, things were getting worse year after year, despite the fact that the only thing we were paying attention to policy-wise, gross domestic product was getting bigger every year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you finished up, you went Stanford. What was your major at Stanford? Was that engineering? Yeah, no, I, I started off pre-med and in the end when I decided I wanted to become more involved in activism and got into anti-war things as well at, during that time and switched to history. Yeah, and then you became the, you were the president of the student body, I, I believe, right? That's right. So you, you all the way through. Went to Harvard uh, for a gra graduate program at the Kennedy School. Uh, and that was when um, get Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin uh, got in touch with you or you got in touch with him. You heard about his environmental teach-in concept. You thought you'd do something like that at Harvard or in the Boston area. The next thing you knew, uh, you were uh, given the reins to coordinate uh, something that went from what went from the environmental teach-ins to environmental rights day to Earth Day, uh, which is universally known. And you must have been... Um, how did, how did he convince you to, uh, to do that at that time? Well, it, it didn't take much convincing. Uh, one, I loved Stanford and I didn't much like Harvard. So <laughs> encouraging <laughs> to drop out was not a tough sell. Um, and, and I'd also been accepted at Harvard Law and I had thought that I could drop out of the Kennedy School and go back to the law school the following fall. So it was really just an intermission. Um, and I, I went down there, as, as you suggest, I got a 15 minute courtesy appointment to uh, discuss who was gonna be organizing Harvard. And I guess I was actually sufficiently ambitious, although a newcomer in the community that I thought maybe I could organize all of Cambridge and get MIT as well. And <laughs> so I, I went, I actually returned after a three hour meeting with the Senator and a couple of his aides back with the charter to organize all of Boston. And then a few days later, got a call from his chief of staff asking whether I would come down and, and uh, put together a staff and try to organize the United States. So certainly the swiftest set of promotions that, that I've ever had. And that gave you how many months to prepare for what we all know is the first Earth Day? Was that half a year beforehand or a year beforehand? Or? Oh, no, no, no. A little bit less than a half year. This was in December of 69. And, and uh, Earth Day was in late April, 1970. What's more, uh, the early part of it, we were trying and just butting our heads against the wall to do what, what uh, had initially attracted me and that the Senator had proposed, which was environmental teach-ins on college and university campuses. And it turned out, you know, there was a war going on and, and there were demands for black professors and a greater degree of, of African-American and uh, Latino uh, acceptance rates for student bodies, lots of issues on college campuses. This environment didn't land with a huge uh, 
degree of responsiveness for anybody who hadn't been out in Namibia for years earlier, deciding that this was the important way to reorganize the world. Uh, so what, what we did uh, by January, uh, started going through the Senator's mail, found out who was responding to this suggestion. Very, very few from colleges and universities. The University of Michigan was had, had a bunch of red hots, but not many others. Uh, but they were women, mostly mothers, mostly college educated, mostly with small children, mostly in single income families, mostly not having been involved in activism before. And, uh, you know, there was a long period in my life when every time that I met a new woman who was uh, a member of a state legislature, a member of a public utility commission, member of a city council, uh, she would come up and introduce herself and say the first thing she'd done politically ever was, was Earth Day. In any case, we, we then took it off of college campuses, ran an ad in the New York Times, uh, dropping the environmental teaching thing and blazoning the ad with Earth Day, the beginning, and, um, and it caught on. It turned out fortuitously, when we much later took it internationally in 1990, that Earth Day is not only transparent as to what you're trying to say in English, but in, in every language. You just hear Earth Day and you know what this event is about and, and it somehow resonates. And you called it a, a rare political alignment. Um, it was, and I, Mike Peavy in his book about the greening of California, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a great read about how California became such a leader in the environmental movement, but, but pollution, uh, smog in, in particular, uh, non, not a partisan issue. I mean, everybody is breathing in smog. And it sounds like um, the, the, even though the war was going on, there was political divisions, it sounds like uh, this movement that you, this Earth Day, this, this, this avenue, this channel to get, become involved, just broke down on political barriers, sexist barriers, racist barriers. It was, it was everybody, sounds like. Um. In the early days, yes, a few things to, to note. Uh, one, uh, politics in America was in a state of real turmoil. Uh, Nixon had noticed that Goldwater captured some Southern states which had historically been racist conservative Democrats just dominating it forever. And he launched his Southern strategy to flip the South to the Republican party. But prior to that, uh, there had been a bunch of people like John Chaffee, uh, like Elliot Richardson, Bill Ruckelshaus, Russell Train, Russell Peterson, Pete McCloskey, uh, Don Regal, uh, uh, Republicans who had actually very good ideas about environmental things. Uh, Elliot Richardson uh, really designed and ushered through the, the Law of the Sea Treaty. He was never able to sell it to the Republican Senate, but that international agreement really came out of a Republican in the United States. And, and in that era, and, and Pete McCloskey, who's too often ignored, was the co-chair of Earth Day. So we had a Democratic senator and a Republican representative. Um, the, there was partisanship for sure, but it wasn't anything like it is today where, you know, if, if, if you look at the League of Conservation Voters uh, uh, scorecards for uh, Republican legislature, Mitch McConnell, it would be about 7% lifetime average. I mean, that, that is a, a pretty robustly anti-environmental thing. And if you look at the Reagan administration, the James Watts and Gorsuch's, you look at all of the appointments in the Trump administration, they are robustly anti-environmental. 
That was simply not true in 1970. People have forgotten that Richard Nixon launched the EPA with an executive order. Well, I love the story. I think I read in one of the articles that I was doing a little research on you that that Nixon was jealous of Mayor John Lindsay from New York, who I knew as a kid growing up in New York. And John Lindsay was tall and handsome and (laughs) pro-environment and Nixon just needed to do something. And so uh, sort of out of uh, out of jealousy, he formed the EPA, and we give him great give him great credit for that. Yeah, no, he 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 wasn't much of an environmentalist, but he was a very astute politician. I mean, people you know, who opened up China for God's sakes, who who was the first person to propose a negative income tax to deal with with poverty issues in the United States? He was it, it, a very very complex guy, but in this case, uh, you know he. He had made his run to flip the South, but he couldn't afford to lose the New England limousine liberal Republicans. And so he was trying to be a player in both fields. Saw Lindsay uh, basically shutting down Fifth Avenue and having a million people in the streets of New York on the environment and Lindsay on national television addressing them all. Uh, and he looks out his window and, and the mall in Washington, D.C. is just full of people. Um, and I mean, the, the, the anecdote here is John Ehrlichman, who was his chief domestic policy counsel, who got himself in trouble later with Watergate, but was himself actually a quite good environmentalist. He was the guy that brought Ruckelshaus into the EPA. Ehrlichman's version of it is that it was that afternoon of Earth Day when Nixon was wondering how he was going to become a player. Uh, that Ehrlichman pulled out the old Ash Commission report that the head of Lytton Industries had done on governmental reorganization. It had a bunch of things in it. That's where OMB comes from as well, was the Ash Commission report. But one of the things was the proposed Environmental Protection Agency. As, uh, as Ehrlichman told me the story over dinner some decades later, um, he was talking to Nixon. He says, you know, uh, water pollution, we're already doing that at the Department of Interior. Air pollution, that's over at Health, Education, and Welfare. Radioactive waste, that's the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, pesticides, that's over in the Department of Agriculture. You take all of this stuff that we're already doing, you put them together in one package, you might even be able to save a little bit of money. You call it an EPA, and suddenly you're a player. <laughs> and in his version of the story, which, of, of course, suits his purposes, because it makes him the hero and suits my purposes because it was done on Earth Day. So I, I, tend, I choose to believe this story. That's where the EPA came from. <laughs> well, it's pretty amazing. And then, and then the Clean Water Act. Well, you had that whole Dirty Dozen. Um, that was after the first Earth Day, wasn't it, that you went after the Dirty Dozen in, in Congress? Well, what, what everybody forgets is right after the first Earth Day, uh, Nixon invaded Cambodia. And a week after that, they shot four students at Kent State. A little bit after that, the shots and more students at Jackson State, and nobody was talking about the environment at all. And to pull this, and my staff was all concerned that we've got an election coming up. We had 20 million people in the streets, and, and it wasn't much of an issue. So what we did was launch this campaign against 12 people with terrible environmental records. Um, they were people in districts that had been won in the most recent election by no more than three or four percentage points. They had an important environmental issue in their districts that they were on the wrong side of. They had bad environmental records. 
They had opponents that looked like they stood a chance. And we had a group in their district that had been deeply involved with Earth Day. So those are the things we have. What we didn't have was money. <laughs> we had a little under $50,000 uh, total to challenge 12 incumbent members of Congress, which even back then was just nothing. Um, but we did have these enthusiastic supporters who made this issue and their voting records and, and ran with it. And, and clearly for the seven of the 12 that lost, uh, environmental voters made up more than the margin of difference. And one of them included the chairman of the House Public Works Committee, who's a, a pretty serious, powerful member of Congress. So when that happened, McCloskey afterwards has, has written a book about the impact of Earth Day. He says that the Dirty Dozen was really what was responsible for passing almost unanimously. I mean, by almost, I mean, 434 to one or something, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. Yeah, and the fantastic. fantastic. And then I was involved with, well, I was involved as a kid with Earth Day in 1970, we, uh, my school, cleaned up our beautiful roadway uh, in Oyster Bay, Long Island, New York. And, and it, it was just horrifying to see how much junk we pulled out of the woods. Um, mm -hmm. But then 1990, I was at Rocky Mountain Institute. Amory was deployed to Battery Park in New York City. I went to Lincoln Park in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And Earth Day went from what, 20 million mobilized individuals to 200 million worldwide. Uh, just a fantastic step. And was there a link between that and the Earth Summit then in 1992? Uh, well, I think probably, though it's not as explicit as some of these other things that we can point to. Uh, clearly, the decision to, to announce the Earth Summit was made about that time. Uh, Christian Herter, who organized it for the United States and the State Department, clearly got some marching orders from the folks at Earth Day. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I think it created a context within which an entrepreneur like Morris Strong was given enough impetus to be able to turn it into something fairly big. Yeah, and maybe, if, maybe, maybe inversing this statement would be something like, without the Earth Day movement, perhaps there wouldn't have been that the level of support to have a, a global summit. I think that that may not be an exaggeration. I think that in the old legal sense of proximate cause, uh, if yeah. but for Earth Day, this probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, well, it's a terrific, it's a terrific story. You went to Siri, the Solar Energy Research Institute. Jimmy Carter appointed you to head up Siri, which is now NREL. Uh, mm -hmm. And it must have been a very exciting time to be at Siri. Was mm -hmm. it a, a big step for you? And uh, you were maybe you were going into the well. You were going back into government, I guess, at that point. No, it was just it was actually. I've uh, I I have been in state government for a while. I ran the Illinois State Energy Office, but uh, NREL and Surrey are both government-owned, contractor-operated. So you were never a government employee when you're there. You're employed by the the contractor that operates it, like all national laboratories. Um, and uh, so <laughs> I, I have very, very limited inside the government experience under my belt. It, it was a very exciting time. Um, I mean, it was, remember this is, this is a president who by the end of his administration had declared that he wanted a goal of getting 20% of all energy, not just electricity, but all energy in the United States from solar and renewable sources by the year 2000. And he charged Seri with uh, 
developing the strategy to get there. And we brought in this group of people from all kinds of universities and think tanks and other national laboratories and produced this detailed report that unfortunately was issued only after Ronald Reagan had uh, been elected president. For well, let me, let me inter interrupt you. Didn't, didn't uh, when Reagan's people came in, and I don't know whether you were quoted or who was, who was quoted that there was, that in came the dull gray men in dull gray suits thinking dull gray thoughts. I, I, yeah. I've never forgotten that, that line. Is that you? <laughs> it was the afternoon where I held a meeting of an all, all hands meeting at Surrey in a huge high school auditorium. It was uh, where I had been relieved of my duties that morning and they were facing uh, drastic changes. I mean, in the end, uh, about a third of the employees of Surrey were given two weeks notice and no severance pay. Uh, all of our contractors were fired one afternoon. Uh, it, it was terrible. And, and so there, there, there were a bunch of rhetorical flourishes in that, including the dull gray men and the dull gray suits roaming dull gray hallways, thinking dull gray thoughts. That oh, I, forgot the hall, I forgot the hallways, the dull gray hallways. That wasn't, but, then, uh, but then the new, the, the new prosperity, uh, which was the report um, that I guess all the, you had all come up with, the, the pathway to building a sustainable energy future. Was it Dick Ottinger that released that report? Was that, am I, is my memory correct there? Yeah, what, what happened was that the Reagan administration had decided to suppress it uh, and they forbid us from issuing it uh, in theory. But the way that that transpired was I, I was, I had been asked to come to Washington DC to meet with the Assistant Secretary for Conservation and Renewables. I was roaming the halls of the Department of Energy before that and ran into another fairly high official, but underneath him. He said, so have you had your meeting yet? Get the word? I said, no, what's the word? He said, they're gonna squash your uh, solar report. And turned on my heel, left the department, went back to the hotel, called my secretary at Surrey and asked her to call the assistant secretary's office at DOE and explain that I had come down with the flu and I would have to miss the meeting. Called the guy that was shepherding the report, Henry Kelly, who was an associate director at Surrey, and said, okay, we're gonna stop right at this moment. I know we've got another month of work to do, but it's now done. Um, put it into the photocopy machine and list every photocopy machine at Surrey, run off as many copies as you can and get them all in the mail by tomorrow morning to reviewers across the country. So a, a week, two weeks later, I got a call from the assistant secretary who says, I'm, I'm sorry, I hope you're feeling better now. We, we, we missed you the other day. I, what I wanted to do with that meeting was just to tell you in person that we have to kill this report. You're forbidden from issuing it. I said, well, we, we can, not issue it, but it, it's already out there. We've sent it to review for people across the country. There are several dozen copies that <laughs> silence on the phone. We'll call them back. And I said, well, can do that too, but all those people have photocopy machines and you suppress this and, and you're just turning it into a bigger issue. Uh, okay, uh, hold off for a bit, I'll get back to you. And, uh, and then finally calls back and says, well, don't send out any more copies. Maybe it'll just go away. So in order to do anything with it, and we still at that point, remember, had hopes that 
something might happen. I mean, we had uh, a renewable energy caucus, a solar caucus in the Congress that had Republicans and Democrats on both sides. We thought we were going to be able to put together maybe not anything like we would have had under Carter. But at that point in the Reagan administration, it was not yet clear that it was going to be an anti-renewables, anti-efficiency jihad. Um, so we, we thought we'd get it out. Dick Ottinger read the report into the congressional record, but of course, nobody reads the congressional record. So uh, Bruce Anderson and Rick Katzenberg had something called Brickhouse Publishing. They took it out of the congressional record. It was then uh, public and were able to uh, publish it. I, I'm afraid they neither of them got much of a contribution to their retirement <laughs> funds out of the publishing of it as a new prosperity, but wrote, wrote a, a, a relatively fast uh, introduction to it that sort of summarized what the principal things were in English and got out. And but, but, but by that time, Reagan had decided that, you know, ketchup was a vegetable in school lunch programs and all sorts of things. And it, uh, our, our little technical effort uh, never did have much impact. Well, it's, it's in my in my library in my library. I have a library of all these kind of the classic some of Amory's classic books and Brittle Power and Soft Energy Paths and New Prosperity and so uh, it, was, it was quite something. Yeah, keep but then it. I, let's 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 fast forward to the Bullet Foundation and I guess you joined in 1992. You've been there for a while. Um, and what lured you to the Bullet Foundation? How did they, how did they get you to come and, and guide that ship? Well, the, the, a couple of things, some more lofty than others. Um, but the lofty is, I've been involved with a fair amount of federal, excuse me, a fair amount of federal legislation and paid great attention to how it was drafted, how the compromises were reached, what the specific language was, and then saw that as the bureaucracies got hold of it and rules and regulations were issued and uh, duties were uh, out, allocated to um, state enforcement agencies and other bodies, there was just huge gap between what we thought we were achieving and what was actually happening on the ground. Um, what's more, once you passed a law by that stage, the 1990s, we were scared to death to go back and amend the law because uh, Congress is likely to just shred it if, if we reopened it. So um, there was a sense that, okay, uh, national isn't working too well. International has been kind of worse, uh, but maybe regionally uh, we could do, and, and at the state level, we could do something that is, is more tractable. Uh, that, that was the lofty. The, the other reason was I, I had spent most of my life out going around and asking people for money to pay my salary and the salaries of my staff. My daughter was about to head off to college. Uh, I had always told her that she would get through as much education as she wanted without debt, that I was going to be paying for whatever education she could have. That was just part of my commitment when we became a father. And so the idea of going to some place that had a big endowment and not having to worry from year to year how to make things work was just enormously attractive. Yeah, no, that makes a lot, that makes a lot of sense. And, and like you said, creating a global model for sustainable development or, or making the Pacific Northwest the best educated, most environmentally aware, most progressive, somebody wrote corner of America, I, I like that, maybe you, but uh, 
Yeah, I think, so leaving the federal government and, and, and working in the region, and does Bullet just fund projects that are in the Northwest? Is that the, is that the scope of its funding or? Yeah, that, that was the scope of its funding when I arrived. And it turned out that um, very little is practicable regionally. I mean, there's Reggie, there are a few odds and ends here and there, uh, but uh, it, uh, America is governed by municipalities, counties, states, and the federal government. There isn't something regional. So we, after some period of time, decided to focus our uh, giving on those places that were where we were having the greatest bang per dollar. Uh, and then later, we focused it even more. So not even so much at the state level. But we, we are now funding only in what we call the Emerald Corridor, which is a swath of land that is west of the Cascade Mountains stretching from Portland, Oregon, up through Vancouver, British Columbia, where we were really trying to turn those three cities, Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver into, into Copenhagen kinds of places that are models of what you can do if you pull yourself together around something that's sustainable and resilient. Yeah, that's really fantastic, fantastic. And the bullet, your, your, the bullet center that you built, your headquarters building, which uh, is arguably one of the most efficient commercial office buildings maybe in the world, um, is, is such a major statement. Um, you, what you did with, or what Steve Strong, your solar expert, who I know well, did building this sort of mortar board type of an array over the top of this building and stretching out over the sidewalks uh, is such a powerful statement about our need to prioritize energy production. I know you had rain water collection and composting toilets and had people walking up and down stairs. Um, has, have those, ha, you, you must've had thousands or tens of thousands of visitors uh, to the center. Are you, are you seeing it being replicated? Uh, yeah, we're seeing features being replicated. Yeah. Um, relatively few that go whole hog, but, um, but the Candida Foundation has built a building basically modeled on ours and with uh, the engagement of the same architects and the same engineers that did ours to build theirs at Georgia Tech. Um, and there's uh, the PAA headquarter building in downtown Portland when it's up and finished is, is actually the headquarters of the engineering firm that did our building engineering. And theirs will have much of their solar offsite for reasons having to do with uh, Portland's codes, but they too uh, will be incorporating essentially all of the features. Both of those will be full-blown uh, mid-rise uh, living buildings. And uh, that, that's a hard set of things to put together. When, when you mentioned efficiency in the mortarboard solar array, as soon as I say it, and you obviously already know it, but everyone will recognize as soon as I say it, uh, that you have the same roof if you're one story or six stories or 80 stories. And that's where you're gonna be getting most of your sunlight. And um, so if you wanna do it for one story, it's not that difficult to have a net energy neutral building. Six stories, pretty much any place is really pushing it with today's technology. Uh, in Seattle, which is not one of your sunnier climbs, um, we, we use one seventh as much energy per square foot as as if we had built the building to code. So basically a, a really formidable reduction um, and still could not have enough space on our roof. Uh, so we came up with this 
mortar board idea. It, it, it turns out that one, that means you have to put your panels out over property that you don't own, the sidewalks that surround your building, which means you have to lease that from the city government, which owns the air rights above the sidewalks, which turned out to have all sorts of difficulties and involved a resolution from the city council. And then a negotiation about how much you could pay them to lease it so that we weren't spending more money on those air rights that nobody else had any use for uh, than we were actually getting in the form of electricity from it. And they had these code restrictions that the, uh, the support used to cantilever these incredibly lightweight solar photovoltaic panels out there uh, is sufficiently strong that if you put uh, uh, you know, an inch and a half of plywood on top of it, you could drive a Humvee out over around the edges of our building. It's way over-engineered. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was the first time and everybody wanted to err on the side of safety. And so we did it and it worked and, and it all still penciled out. Uh, we, we cost no more per square foot than any other class A office space in Seattle. And yet we are net energy positive. We get all of our water from the rain. We have nothing in it that is toxic or mutagenic or endocrine disrupting. All of the wood in it is FSC certified and on and on and on. Uh, the, the secrets are that we don't have any Carrera marble in our lobby. We, we don't have any granite on our countertops. We don't have Shahuli sculptures out in the courtyard. We, we put it into sustainability features, but nobody has ever walked into the bullet center and said, my God, what a dump. I mean, it's, it's a strikingly gorgeous building, but the, the gorgeousness comes from wood finishes, not from much more exotic and expensive materials. Yeah, what a congratulations. What a, what a terrific, terrific statement. And I, I really congratulate you for, for dealing with the city and dealing with the, the zoning and being able to, like you said, buy those airspace. I didn't know you had to buy airspace rights, but just addressing that. And, and there must be liability issues also associated with having solar panels six stories above a sidewalk. Um, did you have to up your insurance or something like that also, or have a new policy for that or? Everybody thinks of foundations as pockets of cash. Uh, and in our litigious society, we were already well insured. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, you know, so they took care of it. There, there are a number of things out there. We, the city owns a park. Well, I, we don't need to get into all of this. There, there, there were lots and lots and lots of things that we have had to do that have been ongoing tussles. And it's, it's clear that, um, that if you are a developer who wants to get in, do a building, know that it's going to work, know how much money you're going to get into it, flip it relatively quickly when it's fully tenanted to an insurance company or to a, uh, a REIT, uh, you, you're not going to want to do a building that is special and one-off and has all of these features. And we have tried things in the forms of incentives to try to make it more attractive to them. You get an extra story added on over what the zoning would allow and other things. And it's just hard as hell to get people to do it. Uh, and I've, I've become pretty convinced that, um, that the sorts of things that Amory and, and you and I have been talking about, the technical, technical possibilities in this field, um, are probably only going to be fully realized when they are required by code. I mean, when, when I, Seattle has what's considered to be a quite good energy code. Uh, and yet we were able to have an incredibly comfortable, incredibly well-lit building that uses one seventh as much energy. And that's, that's talking that the, the energy um, for tenants' computers and 
um, the other plug loads, printers, task lights, what have you. Um, so there's there's great room for tightening of codes and you know, 98% of the buildings out there are built to code. Yeah, yeah, well put, well put. So what's, what's uh, just last couple of questions, what's, what's exciting you right now in, the, in your work world? What's, your, what's the latest uh, that you're focused on? Hmm. Well, uh, in, 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 in things, again, that, that's relevant to the topics that your readers and listeners will be interested in, um, one is we, we worked for quite some time to encourage our grantees in the environmental community to diversify their staffs and diversify their boards. And, and that, that was with some success. Uh, the, arguably the most powerful environmental group in Washington state is this combined Washington Environmental Council and Washington Conservation Voters. It, it's led now by an indigenous uh, Native American woman uh, and, and a, a number of other places where the leadership has been drawn in, but, but not stunning success. What we began doing about five years ago and has now turned out to be quite well is we, we, we reached out to groups that were led by communities of color, um, but they did not have uh, any real environmental interest. Uh, they were set up for immigration reform or maybe prison reform or to fight crime or to fight drugs or uh, battle homelessness. And we, uh, established relationships with them, found out, are there environmental issues that you would be interested in pursuing if you had the resources to do it? And uh, we found that in many cases, the answer was yes, they were just resource constrained and that wasn't their mission. So we have boosted that more and more. Uh, right now, about a little more than one third of all of our grants and a little bit more than one third of all of our money is going to groups that are led by uh, persons of color uh, and dealing with issues that uh, affect uh, uh, equity. And one of the things that came out of that, I mean, the traditional environmental grantees in Oregon, for the most part, are really interested in state policy. The, the people of color were mostly interested in Portland. And so they got together, set up their own coalition, and got up a ballot initiative to pass a fund uh, for uh, green jobs and um, uh, healthy houses and energy efficiency, fighting various kinds of climate things, getting green uh, spaces set aside. It'll be about $50 million a year uh, in perpetuity administered by an oversight board drawn from communities of color important. I mean, all of that came out of them. Uh, and it's, it's just really quite remarkable what happens if you get people engaged in thinking through these issues by themselves. Another thing, exceedingly different, vastly more complex, I, I, I will not go into its excruciating details because it's not possible on a podcast, but, but as you know, there's, there's this huge problem of um, the, the mixed incentives problem where the, the person that owns a building and might invest money in that building doesn't pay the utility bills. And, the tenants who pay the utility bills uh, are not going to be investing in the building. The amount of money that you pay for a lease um, and the things that you care about in terms of tenant improvements are so very much more than your energy bills are. And nowhere is this more true than up here where we've got all the hydropower. This is pretty true across the country. You're, you're talking about you know 
a lease of $50 a square foot and maybe an energy bill of a buck 50 a square foot. So that's not part of something where if you can reduce your energy by 75 cents a square foot, it's going to bring you a new wave of tenants. So um, how do you get past this? And we've, we've had this thing that we started calling the metered energy efficiency transaction structure. It's now increasingly called uh, energy efficiency as a service. But the essence of it is that you take a building that already is fully tenanted and everybody's in it and they're reasonably comfortable and they're happy and they pay their utility bills. You either have the building owner or some independent investor do something that makes the building spectacularly more efficient, reducing electricity usage by at least 50%. The tenants of the buildings are then in a building that is, if anything, more comfortable than it was before you made all those investments in insulation and everything. Um, uh, so it, it, it's suffered nothing. It has invested nothing. So it just continues to pay the same utility bills that it was paying before. The utility collects that money, uh, keeps a small part of it as an administrative charges, and uses the rest of it to pay back whoever invested deeply in efficiency and makes the whole thing work. You just have to have tenants who are happy to say, I didn't invest any money. I've got a better building. I'm happy to pay the same utility bills. And and it works. We've even got a metering system that makes that all plausible. Fantastic. And what 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 keeps you recharged? You look you look good. You look healthy. You look uh, balanced. Um, and you must be doing something right. What are you doing for exercise and diet and fun? Hmm. Well, uh, my wife has a very serious lung condition, and as a consequence of that. Uh, since she is the person who primarily determines what it is that we eat, we eat very, very healthy and, and have for the last 25 years. Uh, for a long time, I was doing little sprint triathlons with my daughter and uh, going out camping with her and her husband and my granddaughter uh, with great regularity. Uh, you know, I'm getting further out on the age spectrum now. I'm 76. So the, I'm afraid my triathlons are all long in the distant past, but, but do try at least to get out and get the blood circulating uh, yeah. regularly, daily. Well, yeah, that's great. Well, listen, <laughs> I've taken more. I'm good yourself, Ted. What'd you say? Said so you are looking incredibly spry oh. yourself. You're, you're doing oh, so. thank you. I'm, I'm doing a lot of exercising and I'm around a lot of positive energy. That's for sure. But uh but thank you so much for this uh, great conversation. I've learned a lot. I'm sure that the, the listeners will learn a lot and uh, really uh, applaud what you've done. I know you're humble, but uh, you, you don't need to be. <laughs> it's great what you pulled together and the way you the way you bring people together to get things done. So thanks, Dennis. I really appreciate it. It was just a pleasure to see you and talk again, Ted. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time. Uh -huh.